You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy final week of the quarter uh, for the Ellison Center's last talk of the quarter. Today's speaker is Professor Gerard Toll, who is at the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech. He has a PhD in political geography from Syracuse. He's the author of more than 75 journal articles and 23 book chapters. That's a lot. On territorial conflicts, U.S. foreign policy, de facto states, popular culture, media, and critical geopolitics. Uh, He's received multiple research grants from the NSF, and his latest book is called Near Abroad, Putin, the West, and the Contest for Ukraine and the Caucasus. Uh, An excellent book that I assign to the class I'm teaching right now. So it has my stamp of approval as well. Uh, The book is a study of two Russian invasions of neighboring states, Georgia and Ukraine, and the circumstances surrounding these events from a a critical geopolitical perspective, which people in my field, political science, are not really familiar with. And yet, uh, I would argue, and and maybe he'll persuade you, that his his account um, is perhaps the most convincing of of the various accounts of these events that you often hear. Uh, He also recently won another NSF grant, which will examine the geopolitical attitudes of, uh, in my notes, this is eight different countries on Russia's borders, but in fact, it turns out it's nine countries and six unrecognized territories. So that's uh, his next project, and I'm sure it'll keep him busy for a few years, and uh, we'll eagerly await that book, too. So, uh, Professor Toll, you have the floor. Well, thank you, Scott, uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to to speak here. Uh, That project that you mentioned is an evolving one, and uh, so we are unsure as to exactly how many uh, countries we are going to survey in, and that's just our aspiration, uh, the reality of uh, doing research with this um, Uh, topic I'm going to talk about uh, today, the new Cold War, is that uh, things are a lot uh, more difficult for researchers. Um, So the term new Cold War um, is one that has been with us actually for a while. Um, In in recent uh, terms, it has, in time, recent times, it's been associated and popularized Uh, by Edward Lucas, who's a former Moscow-based journalist in a book of that name published in February of 2008. And and his book is a polemic against uh, Vladimir Putin, how he came to power, how he consolidated power by violating property rights, muzzling the press, imprisoning and murdering critics, and how, in Lucas's opinion, uh, Putin's Russia menaces the West. Well, timing is everything in in publication, and 
the profile of Lucas's book benefited from a series of events that began in 2008 with Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence in, in February of 2008 and continued with NATO's Bucharest summit a declaration of April 2008 in which NATO declared uh, that um, Georgia and Ukraine would become members of the organization one day and then ended with the, the Russo-Georgian War of August 2008 and the subsequent recognition by Russia of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, these two breakaway regions of Georgia as independent states. So a second edition of uh, Lucas's book appeared in March uh, 2009, as did a series of foreign language translations. And after the dramatic events in Ukraine in the spring of 2014, uh, a third edition of Lucas's uh, book appeared in July of 2014. And so it was these events, uh, the seizure of Crimea in response to the Euromaidan protests that toppled Viktor uh, Yanukovych and the subsequent subversion of eastern Ukraine by pro-Russian separatists, the downing of uh, MH17, the passenger jet, um, and the use um, of um, Russian military forces to push back an Ukrainian army offensive against rebels in the late summer of 2014. These have become the, the stimulus for uh, many analysts declaring a new Cold War. Um, and one of these is the uh, Columbia University professor uh, Robert Legvold, uh, who wrote in a foreign affairs article in, um, in 2014 that um, no one should casually label the current confrontation between Russia and the West as a new Cold War. Yet, he continued, it is important to call things by their real name, by their names, and the collapse in relations between Russia and the West does indeed deserve to be called a new Cold War. And he subsequently turned his uh, book, or his article into a book, a short book that argued that in five crucial respects, the current standoff mirrors what happened during the original Cold War. And then came 2016, and the still unfolding saga of the myriad Russian information operations to influence the outcome of the US presidential election. Now, this subsequent Russia Gate saga has transfixed Washington, DC, uh, the so-called deep state, and uh, political classes across the, the world. Um, and the year 2017 saw the launch of a series of high-profile pressure groups that took the narrative of a new Cold War to, as the fictional character in the movie Spinal Tap, Nigel Tufnell, once said, he took it up all the way to 11. And indeed, there's a, an incidental irony here in that that particular iconic scene uh, features Robert Reiner, uh, a celebrated uh, Hollywood movie director. And it was a bipartisan advocacy uh, group that Reiner helped create the Committee to Investigate Russia um, that gave us the most hyper-real video of the new Cold War, that of former US president, inverted commas, Morgan Freeman, declaring in soft, sober, dramatic voice, we have been attacked we are at war, 
and I'm sorry I can't do justice to the gravity of the pronunciation uh, by him. Now, hyperreal though it is, um, and we've recently seen uh, Vladimir Putin uh, providing us with the latest video in this um, uh, visualized videographic uh, new Cold War. Um, it is nevertheless a very serious and de uh, serious condition, a deadly serious one, one that could easily escalate into a real shooting war and therefore into a potential nuclear war between Russia and the United States. And so there's a pressing and urgent need for sober critical analysis uh, uh, on the discourse of US-Russian relations and how we got to where we are today. So I wrote the book Near Abroad really in looking at this um, second wave. Uh, actually, it's a third wave uh, of the new Cold War. The first wave is sort of Lucas's um, pronunciation on Russia before 2008. The second is the events, the invasion of Georgia in 2008. The third is the events of 2014. And the fourth one is uh, to the events of 2016. So what I'm looking at is really waves two and three uh, of this uh, new Cold War. Um, and the idea behind um, the book is to provide a social science analysis um, of these really crucial events. So the book is a work of social science rather than of journalism or of advocacy. It doesn't explicitly um, generate policy recommendations, uh, though its argument has um, policy implications um, for how we conceptualize this particular conflict. But it's a scholarly attempt to try to understand shock events that are intensely contested, highly polarized, and frequently mischaracterized. And so that emphasis on shock events and the sort of uh, ways in which cultures deal with that. And there's often a visual, dramatic quality to these events. And there's, often, there's bodies involved. These are sort of embodied uh, events that we uh, are touched by. Um, so what I wanted to do was to look at um, the 2008 and 2014 and cons uh, sort of contextualize that within the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the rise of Vladimir Putin, and the messy territorial legacies that Putin faced when he came to power in 2000. So the book is a first attempt at a second draft of, of history beyond that of journalists one that uses field research, interviews, process tracing, discourse analysis, and survey data to create a, a readable synthesis of, of narrative and analysis. And I think one of the reasons why a scholarly approach is very much needed right now is that scholars are, um, they, they, the categories of analysis in social science are different from the categories of practice of those within a conflict. So how most people think and talk about a conflict is data to social scientists. Uh, and in many instances, it is part of the conflict itself. Thus, what some think is unnecessary jargon is actually an attempt to develop a separate analytical language to make sense of how the conflicting parties, including ourselves and our, uh, our own politicians, uh, frame and experience these geopolitical conflicts. So the goal of the book is really to deepen our understanding um, of the territorial conflicts in Russia's borderlands 
and understanding requires a sort of descriptive presentation of the worldview of the conflicting parties as well as critical reflection on our own hegemonic categories uh, and commitments. It requires a sort of mix of empathy, a sort of empathetic stretch to understand the particular motivation of others and take their language seriously, their arguments seriously. It also requires critical reading skills, visual literacy, um, and engagement with um, uh, some of the um, scholarly literature that is out uh, there on uh, nationalism and on territorial conflicts. Now, understanding, as I point out in the book, is not the same as justification. So the work is also uh, a work of political geography. Uh, and political geographers uh, uh, think a great deal about territorial conflicts and about the spatialities of, of statecraft. Um, and my own experience in post-communist territorial conflicts uh, is that I approach these conflicts from the ground level. Uh, and I visited all of the post-Soviet de facto state territories, including South Ossetia, in, in March of 2010. But I also live in, and work in Washington, DC, and I've attended a think tank and policy debates on these conflicts and on these uh, issues for the last two decades. Um, so there is a field work the component to the research that uh, is important here. Um, and the book began as an attempt to try to fill out the, what I was seeing as a gap between what I would find on the ground going to these territorial conflicts and the particular discourse that was used about them in Washington DC and elsewhere. And there was a sort of missing geography. Um, there was the persistence of global geopolitical categories and contrasts in the capital of the United States and in, uh, in national cap or in state capitals, great power capitals across the globe. Um, and that missing geography remained a problem in media coverage and policy making conceptualizations uh, of Russia's multiple interventions in Ukraine in 2014. Now, I should note that this uh, research was supported by the U.S. National Science Foundation, for which I am uh, grateful for their, their support, and also for the support of research collaborators like uh, Dr. John O'Loughlin, uh, Dr. Vladimir Kolosov, uh, and others. So it's, then it's a work of critical geopolitics. And so there are three core concepts uh, that I uh, outline in the book and argue that uh, are useful as thinking tools. A geopolitical field, a geopolitical culture, and then a geopolitical condition. So the geopolitical field is essentially the spatial setting um, and, the ac uh, and the actors defining a geopolitical drama. The geopolitical culture is the scripts and storylines used by those actors. And then the geopolitical condition is how the contest is shaped by globalization, media environments, visualization technologies and the like, by sort of time-space compression. Um, now to these I add um, another conceptualization uh, called affective geopolitics to describe the ways in which geopolitical practices are entangled with collective emotions of various kinds, of aspirations and dreams, uh, uh, positive affect, as well as fears and resentments, negative affect, uh, with nostalgia as sort of a hybrid uh, of both 
and indeed arguably now uh, a central emotion of our time. Now these are social emotions which are in part uh, cultivated by the state but they're not only uh, produced by, uh, by state structures, they're also produced by popular culture uh, and the like. Um, now affect is embodied uh, meaning uh, and I use the concept to counterbalance the deliberative and naturalization biases that tend to adhere to the, the idea of geopolitics. So this is a way in which you can begin to think about uh, affective geopolitics. Uh, so that is not simply something that's simply about uh, a leaders and their particular emotional beliefs. It also is about the geopolitical narratives, the degree to which they resonate, the degree to which states are engaged in sponsorship of certain mobilizations, and it's about the geopolitical culture writ large. Um, so one of the themes of the book is to look at the ways in which certain places have deeply symbolic meanings and other places not so deeply symbolic meanings uh, in geopolitical cultures. Um, how status anxieties, uh, uh, drives for greatness and the like, which are themes that I think would be quite familiar to, to, um, to students uh, at the University of Washington here. Uh, given that one of your faculty members, Jonathan Mercer, has uh, pursued these uh, these particular themes, um, so those are kind of themes which were are uh, part of the story that is told in the book. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about a post-Soviet space and those geopolitical fields. One of the things that the book does is that it conceptualizes post-Soviet space not in the dominant uh, affective narrative that we have here, which tends to be binary, which is that you have Russian imperialism and you have then uh, states that are seeking to uh, achieve their freedom, they're seeking to go west, they're seeking to uh, um, uh, free themselves from imperial power, they're, they're seeking, seeking sovereignty. Well, one of the values of critical geopolitics is to begin to push back against that and actually make an argument that there's really five different spaces involved here. And we need to think about the interaction of all of these when we're looking at post-Soviet space. The first is a metropolitan center that is striving to define itself as a stable post-imperial um, spatial identity, and that is in Russia in this particular case. But secondly, there's an inner abroad within this center. It's a region seeking greater autonomy or independence for a geographic region within the currently existing uh, metropolitan power. And thirdly, a near abroad of nationalizing states on the metropolitan state's borders seeking to break free from legacies of dependence and interdependence with the former imperial center and to possibly join alternative security structures. And then fourth, a nearer abroad, which are regions within nationalizing states where non-core nation groups are concentrated places that may have held special territorial status in the former multinational empire. And fifth, 
afar abroad, an outside normative great power seeking to expand its influence and reach into former closed imperial lands, now open to new connectivities and alignments. Now, that seems intuitively obvious for post-Soviet space. That also is something that works for Yugoslavia. And it's also something that works for Ireland and Northern Ireland uh, and the kind of history of the uh, of uh, British, uh, the British Isles. So um, this is a kind of a more general uh, spatial uh, model here. Uh, so instead of thinking in just in terms of great powers or recognised states, we need to think of a five-part territorial nexus that is interconnected and reactive to geopolitical competition and change. So we need to think about territorial formations, but also these infrastructures of uh, um, connectivities. Um, and the behaviour of the different actors needs to be understood relationally, spatially, uh, and contextually. So they're reacting to each other. Um, and one insight from an approach that is attentive to geographical entanglements as well as discursive affective ones, is to appreciate how Russia's policies in the near abroad are related to the struggle over its inner abroad. So Russia's struggle for territorial integrity, uh, and I, in the book I discuss the geopolitical entanglements of Chechnya with the Pankisi Gorge, as well as the Upper Kodori Gorge and Abkhazia. And of course, Chechnya was the place that made Vladimir Putin great, it shot him to prominence. That second Chechen war was the moment that uh, Russia began to quote-unquote rise from its knees. Um, and so this sense of Putin being a territorial tough um, is one that is, um, I think, quite important for people to, to grasp uh, and understand as, as part of the larger, larger story here. Now, I don't want to uh, bore you with a summary of the book. Um, I'm just going to very, very briefly show you a few slides and, and comment of the, on these. So there's a chapter in the book on Russia's geopolitical culture, and I make an argument that it's not just one thing. There's a multiplicity of different strands within it. Um, there's a sort of liberal uh, European Russia, which was to a certain extent articulated initially under Yeltsin. Uh, there's also an imperial Russian tradition, as well as a great power Russian tradition. Putin represents the great power tradition. Yeltsin, the late Yeltsin, represents this great power Russian tradition. Imperial Russian vision is one which is explicitly revisionist, wants to, uh, to change the borders, and wanted to change those borders from the outset. So imperial Russian nationalists believed that Russia was a nation in fragments. It was a territorial loser from the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that was not the group that was in power. However, they were influential as, uh, within the larger culture, um, and their moment did come in when the power center, the great power Russia tradition, tilted in their direction, and you had the first explicit um, move to have territorial changes occur with 2008, the recognition of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and then subsequently uh, the annexation of uh, Crimea. Now, I'm, I make an argument about Russian geopolitics being about revanchism. 
Now, revanchism is often translated as revenge. Uh, it, I think one needs to understand it more as a, 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 an attempt by a, a state which has fallen on hard times to try to recover, to, um, to strengthen itself again. And this, in part, is what a lot of states are trying to do. It's what the United States was trying to do in helping Georgia. It's what the United States is trying to do in helping Ukraine, is that states which are not functional are gradually moving to try to be more functional. Um, but of course, there is a dimension to it which uh, can be revisionist, in the sense, revisionist in the sense of wanting to change uh, internationally recognized borders. And what I do is I make an argument that Russia's uh, geopolitics was inevitably affective and driven by these concerns with, um, with standing at all, with respect, with um, this vision of winning again uh, after having lost for so much. Uh, and then there's various expressions of this. Uh, and I discuss these um, uh, in the in the book, um, and then I come to the Bucharest Declaration, which I think is a very very important moment, because U.S. geopolitics has also has long had its own affective geopolitics, both uh, positive and, and negative. So dreams of freedom and liberty, of expanding democracy and defeating tyranny, were mainstays of U.S. Cold War geopolitical culture. And then the wound of 9-11 added a sort of vengeful aspect uh, to US geopolitical culture that endures uh, and drove the, the global war on terror. Now, that culture uh, was built upon a celebrated American exceptionalism organized around visions of the United States as a sacred providential power representing the quote-unquote last best hope of humanity in a world of danger and evil. And Walter McDougall, uh, in his uh, latest book, The Tragedy of uh, U.S. Foreign Policy, provides an account of this as America's civic religion, a creed that periodically finds messianic expression in presidential rhetoric and policy. Now, the April 2008 Bucharest summit was one such moment. Here, NATO declared that it was the manifest destiny of Georgia and Ukraine to become members of NATO. Now, so this was a crucial moment in the clash of affective narratives between a NATO-centric Euro-Atlantic enlargement dream um, versus uh, Russia's revanchist project. Then I discussed Georgia and how Georgia became a cause in US geopolitics. Um, and it's really a very interesting case how did this little state in the South Caucasus with no ostensible strategic significance become a, a, a celebrated cause? Um, why did the Bush administration want to make a country thousands of miles from the United States on Russia's southern border, its soft underbelly? Why did it want to make that state part of NATO? And to cut a, a long story short, I argue for the significance of four factors that were all saturated with affects and um, kind of emo social emotions of, of various kinds. 
um, the idea of uh, liberating captive nations, the idea that Georgia is a sort of a, a David against the Russian Goliath, the idea that Georgia was such a strong partner for the United States, and it's not an idea, it's a reality too, uh, uh, such a strong partner for the United States in the global war on terror, um, and then uh, the um, visualization of Georgia under Mikhail Saakashvili as a beacon of liberty in the Caucasus, uh, in a region which uh, has had a lot of authoritarianism. So those are sort of uh, reasons why the U.S. identified with, um, with Georgia. And I then examine the quest by Mikhail Saakashvili to restore the territorial integrity of Georgia, to, as he put it, get Georgia back. And it was a quest that led to the August 2008 war. And um, what I explain in the book is that uh, there was um, I provide a sort of background on the South Ossetia as a contested space. And this particular photograph is of a memorial in South Ossetia to South Ossetians that had died in the early 1990s at the hands of Georgians when, uh, in the South Ossetian eyes, the Georgians were seeking to ethnically cleanse them from the region of their, uh, of their birth. Um, and so there's a sense of victimhood on the part of the South Ossetians. Um, and then within the larger context, there's a sense of victimhood on the part of the Georgians. Uh, and then there's a sense of victimhood on the part of the Russians. Uh, and then the United States is seeing this as a David versus Goliath uh, situation. So one can begin to uh, look at this from the, appreciate this sort of scale or quality of the, the conflict um, that we are uh, seeing here. Um, and the war of 2008, um, I examined some of the, um, the strategic elements of the, the conflict, the geostrategic aspects of the war. And one of the things that's actually quite interesting to me, and I didn't really fully appreciate this until I did the research, and that is that um, the, there was an automaticity to the Russian invasion of Georgia. Uh, as far as the, um, the Russians are concerned, there wasn't a Russian invasion of Georgia initially. What you had was a peacekeeping mission in uh, Skinvali, uh, which had Russian soldiers as well as South Ossetian, uh, North Ossetian soldiers and Georgians. That was attacked by Georgia, uh, and therefore the and a number of Russian soldiers died, as well as South Ossetian civilians. And so, therefore, you had an automatic response by uh, Russian soldiers who were in North Ossetia, just beyond the Rocky Tunnel, um, to rescue uh, and protect their uh, fellow soldiers in South Ossetia. And if you actually look at the, the timing of all of this, there was no decision on the part of the Russian leadership to say, go, uh, invade. It was already written out. If there is an attack, you will do this. And so this is what happened. So while Medvedev was still asleep, while Putin was in Beijing, the soldiers responded. But then they stopped. 
and they, wa they waited. And they didn't go all the way to Skin Valley. It took them a while to, but they were engaging with uh, Georgian forces because the Georgian forces sought to uh, take back the territory, this uh, breakaway region that was not part of Georgia when Georgia became independent. Was always independent. It was always sort of a separatist area. Um, uh, of course, subsequently, Russia did cross the uh, border be, it went beyond South Ossetia, it went into Abkhazia, and then beyond Abkhazia there was a Russian invasion of, of Georgia. But initially uh, there was a sort of quote-unquote police action, but that it then subsequently escalated. Now, the, this is a, a statue of a polite person uh, in Simferopol. Uh, and what I do uh, in chapter 6 of the book is I return to the circumstances that led to the annexation of Crimea. And I analyze how the invasion was also framed, like the 2008 war, um, as a rescue mission in, in Russian geopolitical culture. And the plot of the Russian storyline on Crimea emerged from the Kremlin's sort of counter-narrative to the Euromaidan protests. So it used the great patriotic war narrative to cast events in Ukraine as a return of an internal fascism supported by outside forces. And, and Putin famously declared nationalists, neo-Nazis, Russophobes and anti-Semites executed this coup. What we sort of celebrate as Euromaidan protests, he sees as a sort of a, a, a coup by these extremist forces. And I examined four different moments in the, the dramaturgy of the annexation, which is the first, the production of this uh, change in government in Kiev as um, a mythic return of the threat of fascism like uh, during World War II. Um, then the generation of surprise and confusion, uh, the production of uh, scenography of legitimacy around the, uh, the uh, invasion um, with the, um, the referendum, uh, and then the final production of a sort of glorious historic moment, uh, uh, the reuniting of Crimea with the motherland. Um, and I emphasize also how this was memorialized in concerts and statues and in movies. Now, one of the things that uh, I was able to, to use National Science Foundation funding to, to um, conduct research on was on public opinion attitudes in um, the southeast of Ukraine and in Crimea towards the description of Euromaidan as a fascist coup. And if you just look at Crimea, which is the bottom uh, here, you'll see that um, people who are uh, Crimean Tatars, people who, are, uh, who identify as ethnic Ukrainian Crimeans, as well as ethnic Russian Crimeans, they tended to absolutely believe this conception that uh, Euromaidan was a fascist coup. But look at the ways in which very few people in uh, southeast Ukraine uh, do not believe that and hold that it is not true. Uh, so you have a significant divergence in the situation description, a fundamental event that has occurred and is seen in very, very different terms. The attitudes towards uh, joining Russia, overwhelming support on the part of 
ethnic Ukrainian Crimeans as well as ethnic uh, Ukrainian Russians for uh, the annexation or for joining for Crimea joining Russia. They don't use the word annexation; it's uh, reunification. Um, and even amongst Crimean Tatars, now there's a very small sample of Crimean Tatars uh, in the particular survey that we conducted, and so I, I explicitly state in the book that this is not nationally representative and a lot more research needs to be done about this. But if we are open social scientists, as we should be, to um, what's, what people are thinking, the particular attitudes on the ground, uh, and if we can do... A, a survey research that has integrity and is free of uh, kind of political pressures, then we need to um, be able to record uh, these uh, these responses. Um, there's also a discussion of um, um, Novorossiya uh, uh, in the book and the ways in which the this uh, became a particular uh, project. Um, of imperial nationalists, um, which was aided by the Kremlin, but the particular uh, means by which this was aided is, of course, something that is still somewhat obscured. Uh, but I think that um, uh, we shouldn't be in too much doubt that this was that there was about two things. One, that there was real divides within Ukraine over Euromaidan, that the, and that in the east, particularly in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, there was a concentrated minority of sentiment which was very hostile to Euromaidan and which bought into the conception of Euromaidan as a fascist coup. Um, and then there were also uh, imperial nationalists in both Ukraine and in Russia who were uh, supportive of creating a separatist uh, territory within Ukraine which would, like Crimea, j eventually join up with, uh, with Russia. So the goal was to try to, uh, uh, to join Russia. Um, does Novorossiya have any uh, support? Well, we asked that. This, these are uh, results from 2014, December 2014, the end of that uh, very eventful year. Um, and what is clear from this particular uh, graph is the degree to which uh, Novorossiya had very little support uh, amongst uh, the majority of people in the area that uh, it was claimed to represent. Now, there were, there's eight oblasts that the separatists claim are part of Novorossiya. It's, uh, it's not historically accurate. They, there's a divide between the historic Novorossiya and the eight oblasts that were claimed in 2014. Um, um, and so we did survey research in six of those. We did not do survey research because it's an active fighting zone. Uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk, so we're not showing that there. But in the other areas, um, I wanted to ask a question which was really sort of polarizing. So, you know, it's either this or that. Uh, and so in, in discussion with the, um, the, uh, the survey firm, uh, we came up with this question that uh, Novorossiya is a self-expression of the people for self-determination. Essentially a very positive one. Or 
Novorossiya is Russian political technology designed to ruin Ukraine. Um, now, you can also say difficult to say, refuse to answer. Um, you can see the particular results here. Uh, and that is that there's strong support, particularly uh, amongst uh, Ukrainian-speaking, uh, but also Russian-speaking Ukrainians in southeast Ukraine for the uh, conception that it is a project by the Kremlin designed to, uh, to ruin uh, Ukraine. Now, um, there's other research that I conducted subsequent to the book, which is on MH17, which I can, uh, I'll simply just flag here, uh, and we can talk about it in the question and answers. But this is the, the shoot-down of the Boeing flight and the particular um, uh, attitudes that uh, people have as to who was to blame for that. To cut a very long story short, we looked at uh, Ukrainian coverage as well as Russian coverage uh, of it. Uh, and then did some survey research in various areas. And if you were, re if you were listening to Russian television, uh, you thought the Ukrainians did it, and, and that is the end of it. That, that's a fact. Um, so th I think the research underscores the power of closed media spheres to create their own realities about a key shock events and about who was responsible for them. So the final chapter in the book uh, deals with uh, our uh, conception of these territories. And I make an argument against three different um, conceptions that are quite dominant in how we understand these regions. Uh, first, that the areas uh, are occupied territories. Secondly, that Russia wants a sphere of influence. And thirdly, that uh, we should support that these areas that are uh, seeking to break free are part of the free world. And I make an argument against uh, taking, a, a comp I seek to complicate all, all of these particular uh, frames. Um, and I'm happy to discuss that with you in questions. Let me just um, say in, in conclusion that um, we're back, we're with we're in this new Cold War, um, and the particular impoverished thinking, the sort of moralized binaries that I argue characterize thin geopolitics, um, are, are with us. And a lot of the people that were advocates for Georgia and Ukraine joining NATO are still in positions of power, or are now in positions of power. Um, and then a number of the really key figures that are helping um, tell us about the Russian threat are also people that were previously involved in uh, supporting Georgia and lobbying for Georgia. Um, uh, and so the particular territorial conflicts that are examined in this book feed very much into the contemporary um, condition that we find ourselves in in this new Cold War. Um, and um, I think it's a very, very dangerous uh, condition. Um, and these conflicts, they're, 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 they cover difficult issues. And so the questions they deal with, invasions, wars, forced displacement, per perceptions of collective victimization, 
They trigger strong emotions uh, amongst those that are close to this conflict. Uh, and so what I hope the book tries to do is to, um, to describe and analyze these, to debate these issues in a civic and a constructive manner. Uh, and to deepen our territory, our understanding of the territorial conflicts and the attendant geopolitical uh, struggles. We need to enrich our conversations about uh, these issues. We need to enrich our conversations about how we talk about threats, conceptualize those, because you know, literally, our lives uh, are potentially at stake uh, in this if we don't get this uh, right. If we don't have a very kind of critical, nuanced. Uh, understanding uh, of these particular issues. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you. Oh, yes, and of course, yes, questions. Well, if you could do what you said you were going to do, uh, I'd be happy to answer more about these uh, uh, local uh, differences in the specific localities that you have uh, uh, picked, uh, uh, Setia, Abkhazia, uh, Southeast Ukraine, and, and uh, uh, Crimea. Uh, I'm getting the sense from what you said that uh, in these areas, questions about the European Union or the Eurasian Economic Union or the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, that the general answer is, who cares about that? We're concerned uh, about uh, very particular uh, issues that don't necessarily have an answer in uh, the context of joining the European Union or joining the Eurasian Economic Union and so uh, 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 I'm just trying to understand in depth whether you're uh, uh, getting into different mentalities in, in, in different places rather than uh, a common set of questions, common set of mentalities that uh, uh, go across uh, all of this. But that is, I, I, I appreciate you, what, what you said earlier, these, within the Metropolitan Center, uh, a separatist thing like Chechnya, mm -hmm. Uh, or within the near abroad in Georgia, a separatist thing like Abkhazia or in Ukraine and, uh, and, and, uh, and so forth. So I, uh, what I'm trying to get to is, uh, are, are those narratives in these smaller places somewhat detached from the, the grander East-West Cold War, European Union, Russia type thing? Um, in, in, in one sense, no, um, and the reason why they're not, the reason why people do care about the European Union, the reason why they care about the Eurasian Economic Union, um, is that people realize that they, um, they are in a culture where you have a geopolitical competition, uh, they're listening to um, television, uh, which comes usually from the Metropolitan Centre, uh, and they ha they, their own identities link up with these larger uh, narratives. So there's a sort of localised form of uh, 
global geopolitical conflicts. So one of the things that's really kind of quite interesting when you look at the some of the signage of the protests in Donetsk is they will you'll have signs in English saying uh, NATO hands off Ukraine, um, and you think wh why is that? Why is it in English? And why is why are they talking about uh, you know NATO hands off Ukraine, uh, especially since it's Donetsk and. Uh, where there's a very, very strong local sense of identity and, and that sense, local sense of identity is often in opposition to Ukraine. And the reason is in part because that is the sort of the larger vocabulary of the, the conflict and you have sort of local actors positioning themselves to advance their own interests by mimicking and taking some of this kind of larger sets of geopolitical uh, struggles and sort of localizing them. But what are those local dimensions? That's what we need to, to ask ourselves. And so one of the things that uh, the book seeks to do is to provide you with a sense as to what it is like to have on a Setian conception on uh, Georgia. Um, and, you know, there, there are Ossetians who live in Georgia and live, from what I understand, quite happily within Georgia, but the whole history of the Ossetian relationship to Georgia is coloured by the events of the early 1990s in, where, in which there was uh, quite a number of incidents of uh, sort of ethnic cleansing against uh, against uh, Ossetians, uh, a number of them were forced out of Tbilisi and elsewhere. Most of the Ossetians lived outside South Ossetia, um, but they were forced to move to North Ossetia and to South Ossetia, and so there was a sort of unmixing of the population. That's history. That's the 1990s, and then you have, uh, so therefore South Ossetia becomes very important to that particular community, and their linkage to their uh, co-ethnics in North Ossetia becomes very important. Well, so that's very important, but the, the facilitator, the protector is Russia. And so therefore they always need to be with Russia, even though in the case of Beslan, some Ossetians would make an argument against the particular policies adopted by the Russian government in Beslan. Uh, because those policies ended up being leading to this disastrous event of uh, of September 2004 in, in Beslan. Well, I find that very clarifying, very convincing. Uh, thank you. And I'll just comment that David Phillips in this book about Kosovo seems to make a very similar argument about what you just said. Uh, I'll just I'll leave it there. Okay. All right. Thank you. So that, that's a, an interesting question. Um, so one of the arguments is that, of course, with um, uh, with media more generally, people are less embedded in place and therefore more likely to identify with uh, sort of not even national media, uh, but with uh, with international trends, uh, viral videos, and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
I, I think that you can have a mix of both. It's, it's something that I haven't done explicit research on, um, but I would think that one can have a mix of both. Uh, you have linguistic communities uh, um, as a consequence of the use of social media and the use of, uh, of the internet. And so if you, if you are only speaking Russian, you're confined to a particular space. Uh, but if you're speaking Russian and English, or Russian and Ossetian, therefore you have access to other particular spaces, which is beyond where you may be living. But then you also have your everyday reality. You're also socialized in uh, your family, amongst your community, and by really key events, which you commemorate every year, uh, in which your particular community uh, is marking some uh, often traumatic memory. So those things are as important to you uh, in constituting your particular identity. Um, uh, one of the things we sh uh, that I do not want to argue is that there, there are people with localized identities and then there's people with sort of metropolitan global identities. I don't think that is the case at all. In fact, I'm in one sense arguing the opposite, is that even in a place like Washington DC, which is sort of cosmopolitan global in lots of ways, there's actually a subculture, a micro world there. Uh, which we need to understand, which has got its own rules, its own particular forms of uh, um, sense-making and uh, certain vocabularies which work and other vocabularies which, which do not work. Um, and so we also need to, to remember that, uh, that too. December uh, 2014 is the surveys. I've conducted with my research colleagues surveys throughout the region for many, on many different occasions. Yeah, I remember seeing survey data about opinions about joint, Crimea joining Russia and that there was a lot of variation in uh, 2013 and then during. Sure. Um, and I, but I was wondering, especially after the annexation, um, if, if I understand that it's like treasonous or criminal to say that Russia should not be um, having jurisdiction over Crimea, whether there's some question of reliability, um, you know, if somebody comes, you don't know, comes up to your door, sure, sure, you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So th this is this comes up as you might expect all the time when you're doing research in uh, de facto states and in places which are highly contested. Um, you know, is this what people really think? Um, there, there's two answers to that. One is a sort of general uh, answer, which is that all social surveys suffer to a certain extent from you know, false positives, people lying. And that, that happens here as well. Uh, um, in those particular circumstances, one, ca one has to acknowledge that, uh, these, that people will be suspicious of uh, folks who are coming with a clipboard and asking for their opinion. Um, however, um, having said that, the particular responses they give you are useful. Even if they are not a full reflection of what people think, they are a reflection of what people think they need 
to say. Uh, and in, a, in and of itself, that is sort of uh, valuable uh, and useful. Um, and then you, you need to check again. And so one of the things that we have done is we've gone back and surveyed again and again. Uh, there has been some change in, in attitudes. Um, but, uh, you know, having done this for, you know, a decade or so, I'm fairly confident about uh, what certain sociodemographic groups are likely to think, where they will lean. Um, so I don't know if it was the same agency, but I was just thinking uh, in relation to the data I had seen from 2013. Now, so specifically on that, that's a, that's a really excellent point, and without getting in too much into the weeds on this. So this, the key data uh, from 2013, they argue that, yes, there was not, uh, and uh, people uh, who are studying Crimea will make this argument all the time, there was not majority sentiment for Crimea joining Russia uh, before 2014. And that is correct. But the circumstances changed because it was not seen as something that was ever likely to happen. Uh, what you do see is great, is the country going, is the region going the right direction, wrong direction? Great wrong direction, very, very significant measures of discontent. Um, and what happened in 2014 is the, what was considered to be possible changed. And so when once it changed, then people were very enthusiastic about it. Um, now, is there buyer's remorse is a really good question to, to ask. And the survey data that I have seen, and I haven't followed up on this in a, uh, in a sort of comprehensive manner because uh, I've been doing uh, research on other things, but what I have seen is that there's some evidence that there ha has been buyer's remorse, but not to such an extent that people think that the annexation was a mistake. And of course, that in and of itself is highly politicized now. Uh, and even if objectively you are worse off, you may also be affectively so invested in the annexation and, uh, uh, and in supporting it and in supporting Russia that you will continue to say you support it even though objectively you may have a lot, you, know, you may be worse off and you may have mixed feelings about it. Sorry to go on a bit. Okay. And just a little bit off topic, but a little bit tangential. And, and I've been thinking about this for a while. I want to know what you think about it. It's the whole sort of petroleum warm, warm water port thing that I never hear talked about in coverage of things like Crimea or even Russia's involvement in Syria. There's a Russian Navy base, right, in Crimea. Right? Sure. So yeah. Of course, they're never going to want to have that be part of NATO. Yeah. And I understand they have a Russian Navy base on the coast of Syria. And I just, I just never hear any reference to this being a priority to them in these types of scenarios. Sure. Um, so I discussed that uh, in, the, in the book. Um, there is an argument that it was all about the base. Uh, uh, but one of the arguments that I try to advance, which sort of complicates that, uh, uh, because that conception sees geopolitics purely as geostrategic, meaning space is all about 
fighting wars and getting ready to fight wars, and that all the only things that are valuable are sort of strategic assets. Uh, and so therefore, the only thing that leaders are really thinking about is uh, what we need to do in order to fight a war and to be, to be strong militarily. Um, in the case of uh, Crimea, that base also has a tremendous emotional value. Uh, the, the site of Crimea as a site of Russian uh, heroism during the Crimean War in the 1850s. Uh, the number, the, you know, the thousands upon thousands of Russians have died there. Uh, and then, of course, uh, during World War II, really v vicious fighting uh, when the Germans took it over and then taking it back. Um, so there's a lot of emotional investment in military uh, the military past and the memory in Crimea and so what I think one should do is sort of see both of those things as connected um, but in and of itself I think most military analysts would say that the, the base uh, in itself is important if you conceptualize your um, uh, your, if you conceptualize power as simply just having these particular military assets, but if you have any kind of a larger sense of power, then uh, there are a lot of other things that you can do which would enhance that power, and one of them would not be to invade, uh, you know, in the first place. Um, so I, I, I'm sort of s skeptical of, of those arguments. Having said that, there's, there's things we need to find out. Uh, you know, there's only a few people who were in the room when it happened uh, then, and uh, so we uh, will await memoirs uh, on that, uh, that particular fateful uh, evening when Putin and his uh, leaders made that decision. There, there is some reporting that his, uh, uh, his Minister of Defence was against uh, the annexation, the move to, to take over it to take over Crimea. And that was a very important moment because that was when great power politics broke and became revisionist. Uh, so a very, very important uh, moment. So you mentioned that you were, there's not enough research on what Crimean Tartars, the opinions of Crimean Tartars um, were from that period and what the research should be done in that area. Um, my question is, are you or are you, are you supporting So there are researchers that do work in the Crimean Tatars. Their Crimean Tatar uh, uh, leader um, has been banned from. There's a, well, there's a series of different leaders, different organizations, but uh, um, the main uh, uh, leader has been uh, banned from uh, Crimea because he did not support the annexation, even though Putin personally tried to persuade him to to go along with that. So there are quite a number of Crimean activists in Ukraine proper who are uh, very, uh, very much agitating uh, against the, the annexation. Um, then within Crimea itself, there's a, a number of Crimean Tatars who have uh, uh, sought to um, become part of the power structure in Crimea and have their advanced their particular interests that way. 
Um, doing research in Crimea is very difficult uh, because you can, as far as Ukraine is concerned, you can only go through certain, into Crimea through certain uh, areas which the Russians aren't necessarily going to allow you to come in through. Um, you can go to uh, Crimea by going from Moscow, but then you're banned from Ukraine. Uh, and so, um, and then actually finding out what people think, given the politicized nature of these things, um, and being able to do the research. There, there, there has been a survey research done. There's a, a group in Germany, uh, in Berlin, called Zias, which uh, a woman called Gwendolyn Sasse is the head of. Uh, and they have conducted a survey work in Crimea, uh, and they have uh, released that, as well as in the Donbass, actually, uh, in, in both uh, government, um, the government-controlled area and then also the separatist-controlled area of the Donbass, and uh, I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy to do research, and there is no one Crimean Tatar identity. There are multiple communities and uh, and they have, some of them, you know, want to advance their particular interests pragmatically. They've always been at odds with the state and have been, have suffered horribly, uh, obviously, in, uh, in Soviet times. Well, I don't want to ask about so my question is about the theoretical framework of uh, critical geopolitics. You had that diagram before of, of four different levels that starts from uh, geopolitical beliefs and geopolitical uh, culture, and all the way up to state-led mobilization and. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, an aspect so, of yeah. An ethics. So, uh, the question has to do with um, elites and masses. Analytically, does critical geopolitics take a position on the sincerity with which elites uh, use rhetoric? Uh, when, when you hear elites using these tropes like uh, Russian aggression and David and Goliath and uh, we, you know, free, make the world safe for democracy, is there, is there kind of an implicit assumption that these are genuine um, heartfelt beliefs or Analytically, can we also say that elites maybe understand the geopolitical culture and therefore use it to their advantage in order to achieve strategic goals? Um, well, so first of all, clarification on, on a critical geopolitics. Critical geopolitics is sort of a, it's a, it is a research field within political geography um, and there's a wide variety of people that are would identify as being part of that uh, uh, field, and so a number of them do work on popular uh, geopolitics and on uh, popular culture. Um, and so I don't, you know, uh, we don't get together and have like a collective positions on uh, these things. There's there there are different researchers uh, that are doing these things, uh, uh, and. Um, some of those researchers um, are um, interested more in the ways in which uh, these narratives are um, 
sort of function hegemonically. Uh, there's, there's a sort of a group, feminist geopolitics, who are looking at feminist geopolitics, and they are looking at, uh, in terms of gender regimes and, and the like, there are people who are interested in um, uh, in affect and uh, in uh, comics and popular culture, James Bond and uh, um, and the like, and they're looking more at the production of uh, sort of idealizations of uh, the nation uh, and the like. Um, there are not that many who are looking at the instrumental use of uh, narrative, um, so. I would, um, I can just tell you what I think, which is that I do think that uh, the leaders are very conscious, uh, very aware of these, uh, of public opinion, and seek to uh, craft messages which they think are going to work. Um, and one of the things in the book that I tried to do was to highlight the fact that the Kremlin, for example, was very attentive to public opinion in Crimea. And from December uh, 2013, we're regularly getting public, almost weekly public opinion polling on sentiment in Crimea uh, and sentiment towards uh, the possibility that Crimea could be independent and could potentially join Russia. Um, so uh, they're very conscious of those things. And you know, in, in a political campaign, uh, you're very careful about crafting particular narratives and, and kind of seeking to create certain images uh, and Putin has done that artfully uh, and so the political technologists around him have, uh, um, have, uh, have created a particular image which has kept his public opinion uh, approval rating uh, well above 60% for the majority of his, I think all of his, his tenure. Um, so they're very, very aware of them. Uh, uh, you know, there are there are multiple elites, and there are also um, certain insurgent movements in uh, political life too, which uh, can be um, appropriated by elites very, very quickly. Um, and I think you you have evidence of that in this country, but also in 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 post-Soviet uh, context as well. generations to change 
human generation to change in order for attitudes to change and therefore for the colors of the map to change? Or are we talking about faster cycles that are influenced heavily by things like greater access to communications, greater access to information that isn't behind somebody's firewall, etc. Do you have a sense of that? Okay, so <clears throat> this is a, a big a big issue, a big question. Um, one of the things that um, that the book does is it cites uh, George Kenneth uh, at the end, um, where he says that the United States or American diplomacy, it's in the, American, the book American Diplomacy from the 1950s, uh, should not be against change. So it, no, it should not um, take the existing world political map, I'm paraphrasing, um, as set in stone is that there always will be change and there will always be people who are agitating for change. So therefore the world political map will change. It has historically. We cannot assume that now history stops. Um, the question is the rhetoric of commitment to the territorial integrity of the state the degree to which that clashes with the commitment, the human right of people for self-determination. And, you know, what is a people? Uh, previously, my work was in, in the Balkans. I wrote a book um, uh, with uh, um, uh, another professor by the name of Dr. Carl Dahlman uh, called Bosnia Remade. Um, and um, one of the things that the United States sought to do in Bosnia was to preserve the state but then it created the it or it helped legitimize or it helped bring into existence it brought peace but it also created this inter-ethnic boundary line in Bosnia there is a good chance that uh, there will be a major crisis in Bosnia within the next year the leader of uh, Republika Srpska Milorad Dodik um, uh, has already held a referendum in that particular space, so constituting that space as a self-determination unit. Um, there is talk about uh, a grand bargain in which northern Mitrovica in Kosovo would be given to Serbia and other in uh, exchange for Serbia recognizing Kosovo. Uh, so there's all this discussion of the, bon the borders changing. We have Catalonia, we have Scotland. Um, uh, you know, a long-standing uh, issue with Transnistria. Um, all of these things are there. They are um, bubbling away, and you now have an era of pretty full contact geopolitical competition between great powers. So whereas previously Russia was um, a partner in helping stabilize Bosnia, and when I did research there in the, in the 2000s, I did research in an area where there, there was a Russian uh, patrolling force as part of a, a, a S4, uh, the stabilization force there. Um, that changed with Kosovo. Um, and it's got worse and worse and worse. Now Russia is a spoiler. 
Uh, and so they will seek to leverage certain of these already existing conflicts. And um, so the world political map's going to change. It's going to be ugly. And it's going to be difficult to necessarily find out what's the just position to be in. Because in certain instances, just championing territorial integrity of the state can be oppressive. And, and we recognize that in the case of Kosovo by, by legitimating uh, the Unilateral Declaration of Independence by Kosovo. We effectively allowed the borders to change there. Um, and I think at some point that will also be on the agenda in, uh, in Ukraine and, uh, and in Russia as well. Hopefully it will not be something that uh, is on the, on the agenda after a war. Okay, and on that note... Um, that happy note. That, uh, what can that you do? uplifting note. Sometimes you have no choice. <laughs> uh, well, please join me in thanking Gerard Toll for this great talk. Thank you.